Hello, Movie Marathoners, and welcome to episode 80 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Monty, and joining me this week is my girlfriend and frequent guest, Dana Nyland. Welcome back to the podcast, Dana. Are you getting comfortable in transitioning from a special guest to a recurring character? You know, I mean, it's never... It's never nice to be told sort of you're no longer special. Um, (laughs) So insofar as I'm dealing with that, um, yeah, I think the transition, I hope, is going okay. Well, your pay will increase. So excellent. be excited about that. So, you know, zero times, you know. Yeah, we're we're doubling your salary. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe triple if you're lucky. All right. This week, we have a special episode planned because last week was the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. And we got to attend, at least virtually. Uh, I did a bunch of coverage over the last two weeks on the festival. It was a ton of fun. I made, I'm pretty sure, 17, 16 maybe, short episodes that were either mini reviews of films that premiered at the festival or interviews with filmmakers who had films at the festival. I'm really proud of those. I worked with a lot of really talented people, and I would highly suggest that you check out the full Sundance 5K series, as I'm calling it. But in case you don't feel like listening to 16 episodes of content, today we're just going to record a recap episode. We're going to talk about a bunch of things Sundance-related. We'll talk about the Sundance experience, what it was like covering it for the first time, uh, some of the major takeaways that we had from the festival, our favorite premieres, hidden gems, all sorts of goodies. And then that'll be the whole episode. So if you're sick of Sundance stuff, uh, I'm sorry. We'll be back next week with a full-length review of a wide-released film, which may or may not have premiered at Sundance. But anyways... (laughs) Before we get into 2021 Sundance coverage, uh, I want to mention that I've been putting a lot of thought into how I can improve this podcast and build the community around it and just provide generally better content going forward. So I'm going to be trying a couple new things going forward. Uh, The general structure of the podcast will stay relatively the same. And unless you listen to this podcast repeatedly, you probably won't notice that many differences at all. But I'm going to be changing the intro up a little bit. You may have already noticed that the intro is a little different in this episode. Um, basically I'm going to be leaning a bit more into the marathoners aspect of the movie marathoners. And I have some hopefully fun recurring segments that kind of play off the marathoners aspect a little bit. So things like the point two section, for example, I'm just going to try some of that stuff to give the podcast a bit more personality. Uh, and I'm saying all of this in this episode as like a, a heads up for two reasons. First is that I'm hoping that the listeners, you will be patient with me as I figure out what works and what doesn't. I'm sure if my track record says anything, there will be things that don't work. And second, I would like to hear your feedback on any of the changes that I make going forward. So if something is working well, please let me know and definitely let me know if something isn't working at all. And on that note, if you as a listener have an idea or a suggestion, tell me. I'm on Twitter at MovieMarapod, or you can just send me an email at MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. So again, I just want to make this podcast the best version of itself it can be, and part of that comes from hearing what my listeners have to say. So anyways, all that out of the way, Dana, thank you for sitting through that little spiel. I could have recorded it separately, so as like not to waste your time, but I didn't. No, you so did not. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's just talk about the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. For people who aren't super familiar with what the Sundance Film Festival is, it's a film festival that takes place every year in February. It typically takes place physically in Park City, Utah, and then over the course of about two weeks, dozens and dozens of films have their premieres there. And this is one of the bigger film festivals, and a lot of the critically acclaimed films for the rest of the year make their debuts here. 
These tend to be smaller indie films, particularly those that go on to be snubbed come award season, which is kind of funny because we're now seeing 2020 Sundance films being snubbed Mm -hmm. at the award ceremony right now. But many of the films at Sundance premiere here before being picked up by a studio for distribution. So for example, some of the some of our favorite films from last year were at Sundance. Uh, Neon and Hulu spent like a record number of dollars purchasing Palm Springs before it came out onto that service later in the year. So a lot of times you see movies here well before they get released, which I think personally is pretty cool. Um, this year, though, of course, Sundance was held virtually instead of in person. And, and while I don't know if they'll say this, uh, because of the fact that it was virtual, they were a little more lenient on who got press credentials. <laughs> and fortunately, somehow that meant that I was given press credentials. So from January 28th to Febru- February 3rd, it was a shortened festival. But I was basically able to watch as many films as I possibly could while still getting at least some sleep and working during the weekdays. And then, Dana, you came along for the ride, which was awesome. We watched a lot of films, and I think a lot of them were really great. Uh, We're going to be focusing on the great ones here. There were some stinkers, but there's no point in crapping on movies before anyone has seen them. So we're going to try and be as completely positive as possible. Um, But in total, including early screeners, I was able to watch 27 feature length films, including the most films that I have ever watched on a single day, which was on Sunday. I watched six. So it was a lot of films back to back to back. But Dana, you were perhaps wisely not as ambitious. Uh, How many did you end up watching? So I took account of this and I can say with confidence that I saw 17 films all the way through. Mm -hmm. There are many other movies that I saw portions of. And the reason for in most of those cases that I did not see the movie through to its end is that I did ultimately fall asleep. But in my defense, some of these movies, um, you know, we would start them at 10 o'clock p.m. and I wake up at 640 a.m. for work in my um, defense. So there are actually above the 17 that, again, I I watched all the way through. There are several that I feel like I can still kind of speak to because I did see like most of them. Then I fell asleep for like the last, you know, little bit. And then you told me what happened. A little bit or the last two hours. No, I fully acknowledge there are some Mm. that I saw like the first 10 minutes of and and then fell asleep. I'm I'm not going to talk about those and pretend that I knew what was going on. So I I will be (laughs) transparent if I if I don't know what I'm talking about. But but I did. Yeah, I, I did see a fair amount of them all the way through. Yeah. So, and I mean, 17 films across four days is probably more films that you've ever seen in like that concentrated of a time. Yeah. So we saw a lot of films and obviously I I saw a few more, but even I didn't see all the films that premiered at Sundance. Not even close, actually. There were 73 feature films at the festival and about 50 short films. And we just didn't really watch any short films. Um, Kind of unfortunate. I was hoping we would get some chances to do that, but just timing with, you know, making all the podcasts and everything. Couldn't really find time to watch them all. But what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about some of our favorite films and spotlight some specific categories. But when we're doing that, just bear in mind that we didn't see everything. But hopefully this will give you, the listener, some insight into what to look out for in the coming year. If you haven't seen these films, or if you did manage to catch them at Sundance, this will give you some interesting spoiler-free discussion about the films. But before we get to those spotlights and rankings, I wanted to talk a little bit about the festival experience, kind of in general, since this was both of our first times attending anything like this, and then also talk a little bit about the major takeaways or themes that we noticed during the festival. So Dana, I just talked for a really long time. Thank you for being patient, but I'm going to throw to you first. 
let's just start with the overall experience. For you, what was it like to watch all these films early and to watch so many of them in such a short period of time? So to watch all of them early felt really cool. It, there definitely is, even virtually, I would say, you know, a sense of just kind of like you're you're a part of something when you know that you're watching a world premiere and that beyond the people who worked on making the movie, that this is the first time that anyone's seen it. So you do kind of feel just the the buzz, even though we were just, you know, in your apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as watching so many of them in such a short time, it definitely was a lot for me. Um, you know, I, I not that I that I wasn't enjoying myself or that I didn't want to watch movies anymore, but there was, you know, there is kind of a sense of like, you know, obligation of like, oh, well, we can watch another movie, so we should, yeah. um, you know, more than you would experience in a normal time. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I mean, we should say that we don't do this for a living. And the people that do do this for a living, um, they watch just tons and tons of movies, like sometimes double the amount that I was able to do, which I don't understand. But they do it and they get like four hours of sleep and they vigorously write reviews all night to get their immediate thoughts out. And it's I mean, it's it's interesting to think about like the headspace that you're in when you're reviewing these films and when you're consuming them. And I, I think even like thinking back on some of the fondest memories of the films that I have, the ones that I have the most coherent thoughts on are probably the ones that I didn't watch between two other films. Yeah. Right. So there's some of these films on Sunday and Saturday that I can say I liked, I can give a ranking and I'm relatively confident in those, but I'm not quite as coherent with this is what worked for them. This is what didn't. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's definitely something to keep in mind just in general when you're thinking about uh, like film festival coverage is that these people are usually on a time crunch. They're usually in between movies when they're tweeting out their reactions. They're usually on six cups of coffee and three hours of sleep. So that's something to keep in mind. I think we were a little bit more uh, sensible, maybe too mean of a word, but yeah. we were more sensible with what we were capable of doing. So yeah. I think we still had a good amount of sleep and we were able to engage in this stuff on a more normal level, I guess yeah. I would say. And because you're not doing it for a living and, and obviously neither am I, you know, there's it because it is supposed to be fun at the end of the day. So it's like, well, if it's if it's not going to be fun yeah. to not sleep and, you know, cram another movie and then like it, there comes a point where it's like okay well then why would i do that yeah and the flip side of that too is that because we got to see these films early because it felt special i certainly felt special getting the coveted press credentials or whatever yeah. um there's an enthusiasm going into it and you want these films to be good you want these films to be the best thing they can be and so because of that sometimes there's some overhype in these things i think mm-hmm. we're going to do our best to keep our opinions in context, I guess. Mm-hmm. But just keep that in mind that, you know, the first film of the festival, Coda, we both love that. We'll have to see it again outside of the festival to make sure it's truly, you know, a nine out of 10 film or whatever we say it is. Yeah. So keep that in mind too. And then the last thing that I want to mention here is that I found it incredibly interesting to watch these films and literally have no idea what the general consensus of the film is. Because mm-hmm. I, I pride myself in trying to be relatively spoiler-free and not looking at the Rotten Tomatoes score before we watch a new film. But just being on Twitter, being alive in the world, you kind of get the buzz or the general consensus of, oh, it's either unanimous love or this film is fine or whatever. And there's some of these films, especially the ones that we saw before the Sundance premieres, like when we got screeners for them, 
there's some of those films where I was like, I genuinely have no idea if this is quote unquote supposed to be good or not. Yeah. And so it was really, I think, rewarding. It was a really rewarding opportunity as like somebody who's trying to develop their own voice and learn how to criticize films better to be completely void of other people's opinions. Because there were some films where I was like, that sucked. And then I went on Twitter and everyone loved it. And I was like, yeah. well, I'm glad that I feel like I'm confident in my opinion of this film because I was not tainted whatsoever. And I'm pretty susceptible to that sort of shit. I don't know yeah. about you, Dana. I mean, it's hard because I feel like, and I, I definitely am someone who's susceptible to like hype. And if I, you know, if I'm hearing a lot of things about a movie, I'm like, oh, I want to be a part of the conversation or I just at least want to know what everyone's talking about. So, so I want to go see this movie. And then it can be really frustrating when either you like something and you find out everyone didn't or the other way around because you don't want to feel wrong. And it's like, mm -hmm. you shouldn't because if you enjoy something, you should, you know, you should enjoy it. But yeah, like you're saying, it was just like almost impossible to even have like the option of having like your thoughts shaped by other people in this situation. And it's like an interesting, just social kind of, ex not experiment, but it's 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 an interesting set of social circumstances to not like have the option to have anyone else's opinion inform yours. Free thought is pretty wild, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, so obviously we didn't get to do Sundance Film Festival in Park City. Hopefully someday, hopefully next year I'll do that. But um, what did you think about the kind of virtual attendance? Uh, how do you think? I mean, obviously we have nothing to compare it to. So right. we were like, oh, this is great. But how did you think that worked for this presentation style? I mean, I, I thought it was fine. I, I'm sure that for people who are are accustomed to attending something like this in person, I'm sure that this does not you know, afford the experience of being surrounded by other festival goers who are really excited. And I'm sure just miss that feeling of being in a room and, you know, watching a premiere together, I'm sure, mm -hmm. is in many ways a much more powerful experience. But I mean, I still thought that the the platform that they um, used to run it virtually was, you know, really, really easy to use. And I feel like we we had very few technical issues with for it having been run virtually. And so I think for an event of this kind of scope and scale to happen virtually and to have it seemingly from what people were suggesting online, I feel like most people had a positive experience. So I think, of course, nothing can replicate that experience of being in a communal setting. But I mean, I thought that I thought it was fine. Yeah, I was really impressed by how seamless it was. One of the nights my Wi-Fi did go out. You You weren't here at that time, but um, my Wi-Fi went out, so I had to use my phone data plan to watch, I think, a movie and a half on my phone. And because I was on my Fire TV app with the festival app, I couldn't even use the festival app. So I was doing it through the Google Chrome browser. Yeah. So not only was it on my phone screen, it was also half of my phone screen because I couldn't fully zoom into it. Oh, so, no. I mean, that sucked, but... Of course, and that's... ultimately, it is the fault of the Sundance organizers. Yes, I was just about to say that <laughs> it's their fault for scheduling Sundance during a blizzard in Boston. They should have known better. No, but I mean, other than it feeling difficult to connect with like the Sundance community, like you said, I thought it went pretty well, and it was pretty sick to wake up at seven a.m. on Sunday and then immediately start the movie without leaving bed. So it's got its perks too. Um, did you have any like takeaways or things that you learned about? you know, the state of movies or yourself, your personal opinions, anything like that, 
that you got from this festival and this experience of watching so many movies back to back to back? One thing that struck me was that it felt a lot more personal to know that you're one of the first people reacting to someone's movie, which I sort of touched on earlier, because I felt guilty when I didn't like something. And I almost like, <laughs> didn't even want to say that I didn't like something. And I would like almost never dream of like putting it out on the internet and writing that I didn't like something. Because when you go to a theater and see a movie from a major studio and you have complaints about it, you, you know, I remember you know, walking out of The Rise of Skywalker and immediately me and my friends are like, you know, this is what's wrong. But the the um, issues that you're figured raising... Figured out a way to sneak in a criticism of Rise of Skywalker yeah, there, huh? The issues that they're raising, they're, they're almost not even creative. They're like at the executive level and you're criticizing like business decisions that mm -hmm. like one of the biggest entertainment corporations in America made. And so, and also J.J. Abrams, but he's fine. Um, <laughs> it like, it just feels really, you know, you don't, you feel so detached from that that like you know that what you're saying would would not bother them and even if it does like you're just like well you know they can you know take that all the way to the bank so it doesn't matter but now it's like knowing that this is like an indie film and the people are probably nervous that people are watching their film for the first time and then like you see the interview with the filmmaker air right before the movie starts and so there's like a face to it and so when you don't like something you're like Oh, no. And I mean, I think that's like a good reminder yeah. at the end of the day that, you know, there there are creators and there are artists behind every film, even in cases with something when someone like Disney's making it. There are, you know, that the actors and the, you know, costume designers and all those people, like so many people come together to make something. And I mean, I think it's good to remember that human element. But I was much more aware of it definitely in this kind of, you know, independent filmmaker environment. Yeah, there's a phenomenon that I find really weird on Twitter, and it's that some people will dunk on a movie and then tag the director or the actors in it. And I mean, you know, like you're saying, J.J. Abrams ultimately doesn't really care, or I'm sure he does, but it doesn't really matter to his career whether you like Rise of Skywalker. But it's still something that somebody puts out into the world the same way that you and I are putting this out into the world, this podcast, like it's so bizarre to think about like giving this negative energy to something that somebody works so hard on doing. So like with these films specifically, I tried to give them more of a benefit of the doubt when I tweeted out about stuff. Um, you know, I, I wasn't saying, I, I didn't necessarily say that the movie worked when it didn't. I, I, I had negatives and I said that things didn't work, but there were a couple films that like so many people were so positive about that I didn't care for i just decided not to tweet them mm -hmm. or like to tweet my thoughts because ultimately there's a, a non-zero chance and in some case a hundred percent chance of some of these creators seeing your comments right and i think that's an important thing to remember too is that like when you tweet something out ryan johnson or jj abrams might not see it but the director of this sundance film that made their first project and poured their heart and soul into it might and you're right it's support an important thing to remember yeah. And also another thing that you just sort of reminded me of is just the idea, like when a movie, like I, I like that you, that you word a lot of times when you don't like a movie, you say it didn't work for you because you're, you're still sort of taking ownership of your sort of dislike of the movie because it's like, it's not that the movie was bad. It's that it didn't work for you. And, and not every movie is necessarily for you and not every movie is, is made tailored to your enjoyment. And I think that that's an important thing to remember that 
you know, there's a possibility for, you know, for a movie that doesn't work for you to work for a lot of other people. Yeah. Let me tell you, I learned that so many times <laughs> in this festival. There were a couple films specifically that sort of broke me in a sense where I was just like, I'm not enjoying this at all. In fact, I would actively say that I hate this film. But then you go on and you see that some people love it. And I think ultimately there are certain films that I just know I'm not going to like. There's very specific types of films that aren't for me. You know, for example, more experimental films that don't have a plot tend to not be my jam. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they do. And it would, and it's really great when I'm surprised. But for the most part, I am usually able to tell if a film's like not really for me. And then the best that film can do for me is be like, well, I had understand that that was good. But I didn't enjoy myself. So it's like, why am I wasting my time? And I think Mm -hmm. this film festival helped me realize that, like, there are so many films out there. Pick the ones that you want to see and don't feel obligated to see the film. Because, again, it's not my job to do this. So I don't need to see the new Netflix film that everyone's talking about if I think it's going to suck. And that was a really good recontextualization for me going forward into this year. Yeah. And I think I think that's a good thing to know. And to just keep in mind. And I think it's hard, especially now during the pandemic, because it almost is like, well, like if when there's a big, you know, movie that drops on Netflix and it sort of becomes the thing that everyone's talking about, you know, for like yeah. three days. But <laughs> um, and it's like, well, well, I'm not going anywhere, so I might as well watch it. But yeah, I, I mean, if you know that you're not going to enjoy it, then there's no need to put yourself through it, which isn't to say that you should never, you know, take a chance on something that seems like it might not be for you. But you don't need to always feel a sense of obligation to do it. Yeah. You mentioned the pandemic, which we should talk about a little because I, you know, we're not going to talk about the pandemic, but we're going to talk about how the pandemic affects film. (laughs) Wow. Imagine talking about something useful on a podcast. Yeah. Um, I don't think it would be useful for me to share my thoughts (laughs) on the pandemic. Hot take. The pandemic sucks. sucks. Um, I mean, so did you feel that the pandemic invaded or affected how you viewed some of these films? Because for me, I noticed that, sure, there's a lot of films in here that definitely are pandemic related and explicitly so. Like there's a pandemic documentary and there's a film that is a documentary about high school kids graduating in 2020. So obviously they address the pandemic. There's these very explicit things. But I felt there was also a lot of like implicit feelings about Mm -hmm. what types of films were selected and how you engaged in films because of the pandemic. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. And I think it's interesting because I think I I did feel like a lot of the um a lot of the films had themes that, you know, pertain to the ideas of like isolation and alienation. And I think that even before the pandemic, I think that's something I mean, it's always been a theme, mm-hmm. but I think especially sort of a 21st century theme because I feel like there's a lot of media that centers around how we've become increasingly isolated because so much of our world, again, even prior to the pandemic, had become sort of virtual and we had sort of become more, you know, internal um, beings where we spend a lot of our our days inside in sedentary positions, you know, talking to people on screens rather than in person. And the pandemic has sort of amplified you know, that lifestyle and as a consequence of those themes, you know, in the extent that they pervade our lives. So it makes sense that it would affect the extent to which they pervade our media. And, you know, the whole kind of like we spend all of our lives on social media thing has been a thing for so (laughs) long now. And I think that like 
it it makes sense that the pandemic would sort of ramp up how much people are thinking about not even the social media thing specifically, but just how a lot of people feel very alone or a lot of people feel a loss of community or a struggle to connect with, you know, with their community. So I think that it made sense to see that reflected in these in these movies that we saw. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think the pandemic has also kind of made us reevaluate what we value, just certain core beliefs, core ideals, what we find interesting, what we find relatable. Um, and, you know, like a really obvious example of that is anytime somebody is walking through a crowded place in a city, people are like, wow, this film made me so nostalgic of pre-pandemic yeah. time. You know, so that's that's a really obvious example. But I think there's a lot of these films that even if it's not intentional, there are these reads that are pandemic associated, like reading things as, you know, getting back to nature. For example, there's one film that I'm sure we'll talk about that is very much about a woman's desire to just leave it all behind and go out and live in a in the woods and not think about anything. And I don't know how impactful that film is to the average person if you didn't spend a year being essentially isolated and wishing to just get away from it all, you know? Mm -hmm. So it'll be really interesting to see how the pandemic, even hopefully long after it's gone, you know, hopefully it, it does go away, like how people will engage with media, but also how people will create media and what kind of things that they're trying to do. Because you can already see it now unintentionally. So it'll be really interesting to see how intentional it becomes, right? Because I think what I don't want to see and what is clear from some of the films in this festival is that I don't give a fuck about like directly pandemic related content. Like I do not care about the takes of people living in a pandemic, dating in a pandemic. Like I, it's too soon, maybe in 10 years, I'll be interested on somebody's like artistic take on it. But right now I don't care at all. What I do care about is how films that aren't about the pandemic kind of are, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that definitely makes sense. And I do agree that you know, we're we're living in this every day. And I mean, you and I are, you know, we're we're lucky to be in a position where I mean, our lives are greatly affected by it. But like, we're fine. You know, we do a lot more inside and we don't see people and we're safe. But you know, we're you know, we're not like struggling in, in a way mm -hmm. that I know a lot of people are. So there, there definitely are stories that deserve, you know, attention in the context of the pandemic. And I think that when we go to movies like when we go to like entertainment it's like we we see that stuff like all the time now in the rest of our lives and we want that escapism to go like anywhere else so it's like i don't want to watch a movie about this historical event that i've been living in for a year and i do agree that there will come a time i think when when there feels like there's more value to those things especially as we remember this time and i do think that maybe as a time capsule it's worth having those things that were made you know, about this time during it so that so that we I mean, I, I know that we're not going to forget, but just so like culturally everyone remembers it and so that we can show that to future generations. But but I agree that I don't I don't want to watch, you know, someone talk about COVID. Well, I hear the word <laughs> COVID a million times a day. Yeah, for sure. Um, that was kind of a heavier conversation. So I just want to end on one kind of takeaway, one positive main overall lighthearted takeaway that I got from this film festival. And it's that any movie that's roughly 90 minutes is amazing. Yeah. And I will watch it. <laughs> so many of these films were so short and I adored it. Yeah, no, that was definitely nice. And it definitely would have been a lot harder to 
to get through so many movies if they had been over two hours. Yeah. So make your movie shorter and people will watch them. It's, I mean, not a hot take by any means that short movies are good, but it's just nice to see some of these directors, especially uh, we can talk a little bit about sort of the recurring themes of the, the festival, I guess, is that a lot of these directors are first time directors. They're trying something new and the film, quite honestly, doesn't have enough content to be longer than mm-hmm. 90, 100 minutes. And I like that they recognize that. And it's not padded for some studio mandate. Um, it just does what it wants to do. In some cases, the films are like 84 minutes. Yeah. And well, it's, it's probably also nice. a function of funding. Like, if you're yeah. not backed by a major studio, like, it's obviously cheaper to make a shorter I don't know movie. if that tracks. <laughs> what? I'm kidding. I, I don't know. Um, because you, you know, you don't have to pay people for as long um, if you're, you know, making good use of your time and your money. Yeah. So did you have any other like recurring themes? We kind of talked about the explicit and implicit COVID stuff. Um, some of the other things I jotted down was that there was a lot of directorial debuts at this festival. I don't know if that's common in Sundance history, um, yeah. but there certainly were a lot this year. Uh, There was a lot of films directed by and about women, which was nice. And then there was a lot of stories from people of color, indigenous people, international uh, storytellers. So all sorts of really unique films here. Yeah, I think um, I think that there was definitely a diverse array of um, filmmakers and, you know, characters across the movies that we saw, which was definitely um, really cool. I know that, you know, in some of the movies that like ended up getting some of the awards i know that some people were a little maybe like didn't feel like the diversity of the festival reflected the awards yeah um and and that's tough because but it's only sundance that does that right (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's tough because i i do like a lot of the films that won awards and and so i'm definitely not going to be like they shouldn't have won but i mean i i do think it, it is weird, and I don't know how it normally works, but it felt like the same movies were winning all of the, the awards. Mm-hmm. And I did wonder like, if that was something that normally happened or if there was normally more of a variety in the things that won awards. But there's like different categories of there's like the audience awards, and then there's like the jury, and then there's the grand jury. But it seemed like they were all giving it to the same movies. Yeah, I don't know. Couldn't tell you. But, you know, overall, I thought there was a lot of really interesting filmmakers in front of the camera and behind the camera. And I really enjoyed seeing those types of films. And I think hopefully these films will be picked up so that a lot of people can see a lot of these stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's go ahead, actually, and take a break here. We've been talking for a little bit. And when we return, we'll just dig into our Sundance spotlights where we spotlight some of these films that we really enjoyed. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. 
All right, we're back and talking about the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. We're going to start just talking about what I'm calling Sundance Spotlights. So we're going to give a spotlight to some of these films by setting up sort of categories and picking films that we saw, of course, that fit into these categories. And I actually tried to um, make it so that each category, like the film that I picked was only picked for one category. So um, I kind of weaseled in some things here and there, but we'll um we'll see how this goes and then of course we'll end with our top 3 favorite films across all categories um from the festival so dana why don't we start with best documentary there were a lot of documentaries at sundance uh we saw a handful of them i think we saw more feature films for sure than docs but there were a lot of good ones uh, did you have one that you particularly liked i really liked one called playing with sharks and I was really excited about it yeah. even going in. Um, I don't know. I like, I mean, I like all animals, but like, and I, I always think that like, you know, underwater footage is, is just cool to see because, you know, I don't like get out deep ocean diving too much. So it's like cool to see what's, what's, what they're yeah, doing anymore. out there. Um, Thanks pandemic. Yeah, since, since the pandemic, my deep ocean diving has really <laughs> taken a hit. Um, but it's, a, so it's about a, a woman named Valerie Taylor who is uh, an Australian diver and she and her husband um it's really cool because a lot of the footage that is featured in the documentary is just the footage that they have been taking throughout their career as they have been diving of um of sharks and great white sharks and all sorts of different sharks and they started out you know um by doing exploratory dives but they would go and they would actually catch sharks because that's something that people would do and they thought that that was a good way to study them was to was to catch them, which did ultimately result in the death of said sharks. Um, and then they they realized, you know, hey, maybe we should stop killing these guys. Um, mm-hmm. And they really came to understand and love these creatures. And it's it's so cool to watch that unfold in this footage that's been taken over the course of decades. And even the footage that's that's super old, I think, looked amazing. And, you know, because they were sort of filmographers in addition to divers. So they really were at the perfect intersection to be the people who were taking this footage and this woman is, is she, and she's she's a little old now, um, but she's adorable <laughs> and she just loves sharks and it's so adorable and she's but she's also crazy like she just like still now she's like probably like eighty and she's just like walking up to these sharks like you know petting them and being like you know people are surrounding her on the boat and they're like kind of worried about her and she's like oh no like he's nice like he won't hurt me and you know it's it's something that I just can't relate to at all because I would be so scared if I were in many of the situations she was in. But it's like, it's always fun to just watch someone who is so in love with what they do and so good at what they do. And so you're just watching someone talk about something they're so passionate about and watching this really cool footage of sharks. And I just really enjoyed it. Yeah. So I talked about this film with Rosa Parra on a little, one of our little mini reviews, and we were both really positive about it. And I I agree. It's, It's a really good film. The thing that I liked most about it was that it gave you those kind of holy shit moments that nature documentaries are so good at producing. There's moments where she's swimming with the sharks, which is a thing that I always call this film. Every single time I call it swimming with sharks instead of playing with sharks. But she is playing with them because like she is just out there in the water with virtually no protection just next to these bull sharks or in some cases, I don't think she ever goes in the water completely unprotected with great whites, but there's 
points where she's like off the, the side of the boat, like feeding a great white. Yeah, with, like hand with her hands. It. Yeah. And it is just in insane. Like barefoot, just, you know, reaching yeah. in there. And she pets it. Um, and it's just really fascinating also, too, because these people are also the people that filmed the actual sharks that they used in Jaws. So the the footage of the sharks in Jaws that are like not the mechanical one that is named what, Dana? The name of the shark in Jaws is canonically Jaws. No, it's not. It, it, the shark does not have a name in Jaws, but everybody called the animatronic shark Bruce. Why would you not name the shark Jaws? I just, I think that... The- well, anyways, <laughs> so they filmed the shark from Jaws, Bruce, and, you know, that film led to people being terrified by sharks. It led to kind of the death of a bunch of sharks because people were like, fuck these sharks, they're vicious monsters. But, you know, her kind of MO for the better part of like the 70s and 80s or whatever was that sharks are actually calm and uh, you know it's a little misleading like they definitely kill people but like but they're not like actively going out seeking to kill people which i think is what jaws made it seem like and it's actually funny there's one point in this where they're sort of trying they're trying to prove that concept and so they go out and like intentionally get sharks to bite them to show that the shark won't then proceed to eat them just because it can bite them so they're wearing like (laughs) you know like fancy armor and they just go in and they're like egging the sharks on to bite them well i think it was that like in jaws there's scenes where the shark can like bite through metal and shit and so they were trying to show that a shark's bite is not you know it's not going to break through chain mail, which yeah, is well, because I don't think but... it, the. Yeah, I mean, their lethality is not that their teeth are so sharp, but they're just so strong and they can like shake their heads back and forth with such force. Yeah. So if you have like the proper metal protection, they can't. They can't just bite through it by the the sharpness of their teeth. Yeah. So playing with sharks, really great documentary about sharks and playing with them. We definitely recommend that one. That is not my best documentary. My best documentary is a film called Cusp. Which you didn't see. I watched that by myself. Uh, It was on the last day of Sundance. So um, you weren't able to join me. But Cusp is a film that just follows three Texas teens, uh, all girls, through a summer, basically. And it kind of just shows their life. And normally I'm more invested in a film when it has uh, a plot, even a documentary. I like when the documentary is about an event or something. So this film doesn't have that but what it does have is it's just this really detailed look into what these women or young girls i guess put up with and go through on a daily basis and just how they explore the cusp of adulthood while still being kids and how they're treated by the men in their lives uh, the boys in their lives how they navigate what they think their expectations are of what society puts on them as women um kind of their parents how their parents interact with them All of it is just this really nuanced look into things that, you know, are not uncommon in film and especially documentaries, but just um, things like sexual assault, sexual violence, stuff like this. Um, How it's kind of casually talked about by these girls is just terrifying, really upsetting. Like, they'll just be like, yeah, we know that guy assaults women all the time or, yeah, I was... Um, sexually assaulted five years ago. I don't really talk about it much. It's not a big deal. I just want to move on. I didn't cry about it at all. The only time I cried about it was when I lost the civil case against my father's best friend who like assaulted, like just really scary stuff. And it's just really eye-opening, really intimate 
with these girls, like some of the stuff that they say to the camera and some of the stuff that they do just in terms of like the legality of it. I don't know how they were so comfortable doing this stuff in front of a camera. Um, it makes me terrified to like potentially be a parent someday because some of the shit that they go through and how they cope with it, whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, is really harrowing. But it's a really, really just intimate 90 minutes with these girls. And I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I, w- I wish I'd gotten to see it. I look forward to um, when it ultimately is released at a wider level, being able to watch it. Yeah, you may have to watch it alone because it's not necessarily one of those ones that I want to watch again, but we'll see. Well, you are famously the only person I know, so it's either with you or yeah, alone. That's exactly. Thank you. All right, so that is Cusp. Uh, just keep an eye out for that. Um, just a really great documentary. Let's move to best foreign language slash international film. Dana, I think you have a... DNS for this category, right? Yeah, unfortunately, I I did. I will say it's it is both American and Mexican, and it is part um, in English and part in Spanish. But I did really like Son of Monarchs, um, and you know, part of part of the movie again is in Spanish and part is in English. So I don't really know if it would qualify for this category, but um, I did enjoy. Yeah, so you just didn't really see too many of these, right? Or you yeah. just didn't see a foreign language film? I don't mm-hmm. think. Um, there's, you know, playing with sharks is an Australian film that could count as international. Um, the one that I saw that I really enjoyed was on the first night I saw one for the road. This was one that premiered at like 1030 though. So you were PTFO by that point, but one for the road, a really great film from Thailand. Uh, it's just a kind of like a road trip film about these two guys who one of them is diagnosed with cancer and he has not long to live. So he calls up his best friend who is this guy who's just absolutely charismatic, kind of living this uh, Barney Stinson-esque life in New York where he's kind of just like a fuckboy and goes around to different bars and stuff. And so he goes back to Thailand and they go on this road trip where they go to visit the exes of the the dying friend's past. And he uses the opportunity to uh, make amends with all the women in his life, basically. And, um, you know, the film doesn't always work. It's it's on the longer side. I think it has some gender role things that are a bit questionable, like um, the way that they kind of talk about women is a little possessive. Um, so you have to keep that in mind. But in terms of a story about this friendship, I think it's actually really solid, really touching. And there's a twist in the middle that makes the film a lot more interesting. I do love a twist in the middle. More so than a twist at the end? Hard to say. I I do I do like both in their own right. I think I mean I I do love a twist at the end, but a twist in the middle is almost like a meta twist because you're less expecting the twist in the middle. Mm. Maybe. So would you really like a twist in the beginning? <laughs> I feel like that's just like just not, the I feel like, Yeah, that's not even a twist. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Well, uh, Dana, I think you'd like one for the road. Um, it's it's a solid movie, and it has just like an energy and the like the flashy editing and stuff is just a really fun and energetic film. So hopefully you can check that one out. I would rewatch that one for sure. Let's go ahead and move on to the hidden gem spotlight. So these are films that weren't like noisy films, either pre-festival. So things like Passing and Land that kind of had big names attached to it. And they aren't the films that basically won every single award at the award show or already got picked up or are already garnering Oscar buzz, stuff like that. Um, so that's like Coda and Mass. So I, I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you, Dana, if you had a uh, hidden gem film here. Yeah, this isn't the hidden est of gems, but I did really like Jockey, which was actually 
Um, the last movie that I watched, um, and that you watched, yeah, yeah, the last movie that we watched, um, as part of Sundance, which stars Clifton Collins Jr. as a sort of um aging jockey, the titular profession of the movie, <laughs> um, and it's it's no, he's not a jockey. He's he's actually just a baseball player. That's the that's the first the, the beginning twist. twist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. It's a relatively quiet film and, you know, it's and I mean, in a way that it's not it's not small in that, you know, it it doesn't have, you know, substance to it. But it's just, you know, it, it's not insofar as it's a sort of sports movie. It's not one where there's, you know, like a big roaring crowd scene at the end. Um, I guess I'm not supposed to do spoilers. I don't think that's that much of a spoiler. Um, but it, it feels you're very intimately following the main character sort of through his own grappling with the fact that he is reaching the end of his viability of this, you know, career and passion that he's given his life to. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of movies that take on that sort of concept and the idea of passing the torch. And I don't think that this, you know, reinvents that wheel, but mm-hmm. I think it's a good iteration of that kind of story. Yeah, I mean, it's basically Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. But it's a jockey instead of a wrestler. I know you haven't seen that film. It's really good. It's very similar that it's kind of like a guy who's aging out of his profession. And is he going to go for that one last ride? And honestly, I would watch that film for every sport in the book. Runner Wen. <laughs> the, just a, a movie named Myler Wen. At me, please. Okay. But yeah, no, jockey, really great, really great performance. And it takes place in Arizona at the Turf Paradise Racetrack, which. I have been to many times, so that felt good. You know, as somebody from Arizona, not much happens there in the movie world. Believe it or not, people don't like filming in Arizona summer. So anyways, Jockey, that just got picked up by Sony Pictures Classics, which is a company notorious for making their films incredibly difficult to see. So I don't know. Good luck. But it's a solid one if you figure out how to do it. My Hidden Gem is also not the hiddenest of gems, but it's a film called Wild Indian. And it's a film directed by Lyle Mitchell Corbin Jr. about two friends, I guess I can say, I guess we can call them friends, who experience this incredibly traumatic event as children. And then the story kind of picks up with them reconvening 30 years after that traumatic event. And the the two main characters, as well as the director, are native people. And it's just a really fascinating story that plays with your perceptions of what you expect from Native stories, what types of characters you expect to be played by Native people, and in general, what you expect from your protagonist, what you expect your protagonists to look like, what you expect your antagonists to look like. And just this idea of perception and this idea of what we expect from our performers because of the way that they look and how they dress and um, how they speak is all really well played into this film. And I almost put this in one another category that we're going to talk about, which is like biggest surprise, because I can say after the film, I was a little cold on it. And then the more I think about it, the more I think that it's just a really brilliant, tiny execution of a film. This is the one that's, I believe, under 90 minutes. I think it's like 85 minutes. And it feels very much like a director a first-time director for sure um just trying something and it's not a fully formed idea but the idea that's there is really fascinating and i really like 
that he was given the opportunity to make this film. I think it was through the Sundance Institute. So um, just really excited to see what this guy does next. Um, this guy being Lyle Mitchell Corbin Jr. So really great film. I know you saw it, Dana. So what do you think? I liked it a lot as well. Um, I It definitely wasn't what I expected, which you, you sort of touched on, I think was part of the project was to play with, you know, what you might expect from this kind of movie and what you might expect from this kind of character. And I think especially the idea that representation in film is about portraying the group that you're, you know, championing representation for to always be sort of the perfect kind of like noble hero. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a really cool idea to push back on that. And that, you know, the idea that every group should be able to, you know, make characters complex in their own different ways and have faults and be villains and be heroes, of course, but, um, you know, not rely on that sort of, you know, perfect minority stereotype all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. And these characters are definitely characters first, Native American people second, in Mm -hmm. the sense that they are characters outside of just being a Native American actor in a role that is only played by Native American actors. So I'm thinking of things like in Westworld, where sure, you get more fleshed out characters, but they're still playing characters that are Native Americans because they have to for the sake of the story. This story doesn't necessarily have to be about Native Americans, but it is. And because of that, it's more profound in what it's talking about and what it says about Native um, Native stories. And I mean, you know, you've got two relatively famous people in this. I think the most famous people in this are Jesse Eisenberg and Kate Bosworth, who play supporting characters. And they are just one bit characters, kind of nothing characters Mm -hmm. and the director in a q a i'm saying this secondhand i did not see it so i saw somebody comment about this to me but he said that he cast these characters and gave them such boring blah roles because that's what native performers are used to they're used to having these one-off roles where they're just the native american Mm -hmm. and so in this he made these people be just the white people Mm -hmm. and i think that's really clever so it's a really good movie in that sense and i i think i hope people get a chance to check it out yep uh all right next category next sundance spotlight the funniest film or the best comedy what do you have dana so i didn't really see any kind of like straight up comedies really um one movie that i it doesn't super fit into this category but i thought um i did get some some laughs during and i also enjoyed was i thought the kids in try harder were really funny um, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, and Try Harder is um, about uh, Lowell High School in the San Francisco area in California. And it's a pretty, um, you know, academically rigorous um, public high school where there's, there's a lot of pressure on the students to to get into competitive colleges. And it sort of just follows some of the students um, as they go through that process. And I really liked it because it it, it didn't choose to follow kids who were like the quote unquote like most impressive kids at the school and i'm saying that from their own kind of reporting on you know they tell you these kids were stupid (laughs) no but like they like you know they tell you like oh like these are the kids who are going to get into harvard and they're kind of following you know kids who are a little more unsure of what their paths might look like and it was just really authentically funny in that and it just it was kind of playfully awkward in that Mm -hmm. like you really felt like 
someone just kind of showed up and was like, hey, can you like show us around your high school? And then an awkward 17 year old boy is just kind of like, OK, like, sure. Um, this is the front door. Yeah, I think like, that's a line. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, they're just really cute. And um, and it is a, it is a great documentary. And I think it's it's good insight into, you know, what that process is like um, for young people these days. Um, and, you know, it's it's definitely one sort of demographics experience. And I know that, you know, all sorts of people have different experiences when it comes to applying to college and what they're looking for and what their circumstances are. And you and I talked about it in that because we sort of relatively recently went through that process, I don't think that we necessarily learned a lot Mm -hmm. that we didn't already know. But I still, but I think we both still, you know, enjoyed ourselves. And I think that, so even if you are relatively, you know, still familiar with what that process was like, um, I still think that you can get enjoyment out of this movie of just watching the kids go through the process. Yeah, their marketing seems to be like revisit the college application with try harder. That's kind of what their the mm-hmm. tagline of the movie is. And I think that's a good way to summarize it because it's I feel like there's not a lot here for people who did not take part in the college application. Um, but as somebody who did and as somebody who did try to apply to many of the colleges mentioned in this film and did not get in. Um, it was an enjoyable and like very nostalgic experience to go through this again. And mm-hmm. it's it's a good film in that regard. But I don't know if like if you didn't apply to colleges like these, or if you had a pretty straightforward college application where you were like, I'm going to XYZ and I'm applying there and I'm doing it EA and I know I'm getting mm-hmm. in, then I'm not quite sure how much this film teaches you about other people's experiences. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I, I do think that um, it's definitely interesting insight into the experiences of students who are Asian American or whose families are Asian mm-hmm. yeah. with regard to what the admissions process is uniquely like for them when they're applying to competitive schools. Um, because, you know, they they are they and they talk about this in the movie about how they're constantly sort of being bombarded with the messaging of like, well, like we don't we don't want our school to all be the same. So we don't want, you know, another quote unquote Asian, you know, and it's it's really, you know, sad to to see these kids reflect the the reality that they know that that's how they're being talked about mm-hmm. um, and that yeah. they're not being regarded as unique individuals. And so I like how the movie does give us really insight into their personalities and shows us, um, you know, their individuality. And that really pushes back on this idea that they talk about they're like oh they think that we're all robots or they think that we're all just like calculators and it's really working to to push back against that notion yeah that's a good point that's a good point there you definitely get that insight by just implicitly experiencing time with some of these characters who most of them are asian american so it's like you you get the different personalities and then when it's talked about in contrast to how they're viewed in the application process that's a good point that you really get that. So yeah, so that is Try Harder. Definitely a documentary that you should keep an eye out for. My funniest film is Together Together, which is the indie comedy starring Patty Harrison and Ed Helms, not Ed Harris, Ed Helms. Um, and I talked about this film with uh, Kyle Hickman from Munson's at the Movies. Good little conversation. If you want to see, hear like more detailed thoughts on that, then I would recommend you check that episode out. But um, yeah, this is kind of like the next big sick for me. Just a really fun, funny, pretty awkward uh, comedy that cleverly uses Ed Helms's specific type of energy to make him an entertaining leading man. 
instead of an obnoxious one. At least I found that personally. And I think Patty Harrison does an amazing job and just kind of her awkward energy with like being in the situation, which I guess I should say is she is the surrogate for Ed Helms's character. Um, so she's having his baby and they form kind of like this platonic relationship and just a really good spin on the rom-com. Um, Dan, I know you didn't see it, but I think you would like it a lot when it comes out. Yeah, I look forward to to getting the opportunity to, to watch it. Yeah, so that's Together Together. Uh, it was picked up by Bleecker Street, I believe. So you should expect that in theaters or whatever sometime soon. I, I don't know. All right, what about best horror slash genre film, Dana? Like, there were a lot of horror movies at this festival, and we didn't see a ton of them, but we did check out a couple. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't really see any... <laughs> all the way through that I would refer to as a horror movie. So I'll defer to you. Yeah. Okay. So I saw a couple horror films. Um, my favorite of the horror films was this New Zealand dark thriller called Coming Home in the Dark. And Dana, I know you and I sometime in the six years that we've known each other in quarantine, um, we watched Nocturnal Animals. Yeah. Right. This is the Tom Ford directed film starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Amy Adams. And it's like a story within a story and shit. And Amy so, Adams and Isla Fisher. Yes. <laughs> and so in that film, there's this one horrifyingly disturbing scene where Aaron Taylor Johnson plays a guy who kind of just terrorizes this family played by Jake Gyllenhaal and Isla Fisher off the side of a road, right? Like their yeah. car runs down and they, you know, it it gets scary. And that film does a really good job in those sequences of just being like, that's a new fear that I have now. Thank you, movie. I didn't know I should be terrified about being um, terrorized off the side of the road, but now I am. So thank you, movie. I feel like coming home in the dark is that scene for 90 minutes. And that means it's exhausting. It is horrifying. People that you don't expect to die, die very early in this film. And basically this film is about a guy that essentially terrorizes a family that's on vacation in some part of New Zealand that looks fucking beautiful because every part of New Zealand looks beautiful. And um, the, the guy has a reason. He has a vendetta or a motive, which separates him from the Aaron Taylor Johnson character who's kind of just perversely terrifying. But I think this film just does a really good job at being incredibly intense and incredibly terrifying and thrilling and just a really fun and well done film um it's directed by james ashcroft and i just really am excited to see what comes next for this guy yeah i didn't i didn't catch this as we said uh i i really can almost not imagine a movie that spends its whole duration at the amplitude that is that portion of nocturnal <laughs> animals because that was like i remember it well just like how tense i felt during this like sort of 20 minute sequence it was it's just like a certain kind of like horror like not like horror in so far as like a horror movie normally makes me think of but just like kind of like visceral like Oh my god! Like I never even thought of this as a situation, but like, what if this happened? Yeah, like, like anguish, yeah. almost. Yeah. Well, that's coming home in the dark. It's not for everyone. Dare I say it's not for you, Dana? But um, I thought it was really well done, and this guy has a bright future as the next Peter Jackson or Taika Waititi or or whatever. The next James Ashcroft, I should say. So, uh, okay, 
Next category is biggest surprise. What's your biggest surprise? The film that surprised you, hopefully surprised you positively instead of negatively, but I guess you could interpret this either way. Um, You kind of stole um, my thunder here, but I was going to say the biggest surprise for me of the festival is when- Hillbilly Elegy. No, is when Jesse Eisenberg <laughs> appeared in Wild Indian. <laughs> okay. Because it is, it is just so random. I know this isn't what you meant the question, but um, <laughs> it is just so like sudden. Derail us, do it. Um, Because like he just like is like kind of like one of those like side office characters who shows up and he's like, do you want to go out for a beer later? And the guy's like, actually, no. And then he's like, okay. And then he just disappears. Yep. <laughs> You're like, Jesse, were you, were you like having a really slow month? Like what? <laughs> But um, but now that I've explained like what Wild Indian is or like why they yeah, did that, yeah. it makes no, sense. I, right? Yeah, no, yeah. it does. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't have like any particular one that spoke to me for biggest surprise because as we've sort of mentioned, I didn't really know almost anything about any of these movies going in. So it's like mm-hmm. hard to say like one surprised me a lot because I feel like all of them, I was like finding out what they were as we went in. So like I wasn't like, that's not what I expected because I really didn't have expectations so yeah sorry (laughs) for my okay no that's fine i mean there were definitely some films that i think surprised me in the 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 wrong way where i was like i had high expectations for this and i was a little disappointed but uh one that i had like a positive surprise about was eight for silver this is one of your famous i fell asleep i did see most of this really yeah okay i well Well, okay i saw i would say at least i would say at least half well, that is the definition of most. Yeah, well, no, I know. But I I feel, I feel like there's a popular kind of conception that most has to be like... 75%? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. And I, I really want to push back on that narrative about the meaning of most. <laughs> Trying to change the connotation of yeah. most. Okay. Well, Eight for Silver is a period piece werewolf movie. Uh, Eight for Silver stars Boyd Holbrook. I did talk about this with Frederick Newty on um, one of our many episodes many reviews so again i thought we had a really good conversation with that definitely check that out but yeah it's a period piece late 1800s really cool creature effects a really good and interesting unique design for the werewolves and while it has some things to say about like class divides and the rich and wealthy taking over land that doesn't belong to them and even how you handle a pandemic and like who's responsible for all that stuff there, there is a lot of nuanced stuff in here, but there's also just a visceral appeal to watching Boyd Holbrook fight a werewolf. So, yeah, that's my best surprise of uh, the Sundance Film Festival. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe someday I'll watch the second half of the movie. I'm not in a huge rush. I, I did enjoy the first half, like, insofar as it did feel like something that could have been absurd like yeah kind of like abraham lincoln vampire hunter vibes um but it it did feel like it sort of kept itself grounded even in the context of of what it was um so it's not it's not you know my cup of tea but i i do see why um some people might really enjoy this yeah well uh moving right along then that was eight for silver what is the film with your favorite performance from this film festival. Not necessarily the best, but your favorite performance. This is this is tough because there are there are several that come to mind. And yeah, all these films have performances in that them. That is true. So I was awake enough to see 
at least <laughs> one performance. Um, and I think it will go without saying, and it will be talked about enough, even just on this podcast itself, um, Daniel Kaluuya in Judas and the Black Messiah. So I won't talk about that, but I have worked in that. I think that's an amazing performance. Um, I see. Yeah. But I one that one that I'll say that I feel like is a little bit more personal to one that I just really loved was I loved um, Demian Bouchier in Land. He plays mm. Miguel. And I just was like, this is the best man ever. Like, I just like loved him in the movie. I, I feel like I don't even have much of a, a an explanation of why the performance is so good. But he just conveyed with his performance, even in a kind of muted and gruff way that the movie sort of takes on, so much warmth and so mm-hmm. much um, love without ever directly expressing it. And I think that that's a lot of, without getting into it too much, what the movie is about is just kind of the quiet um, bond that can form between people and how life-affirming that can be. And I think that he convincingly plays someone who single-handedly like changes Robin Wright's character's mind about like what it means to be alive just by being there for her. And I just bought it from him. And I was like, yeah, I would, I would probably decide life was worth living to if <laughs> he was my friend. Yeah, that is a great performance. And I think it really carries the movie, not to take anything away from the Robin Wright character, but certainly the last half of that film, when Damien Bashir is more prominently featured, is, in my opinion, significantly better than the first half. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, great choice. Um, my favorite performance is going to be Christopher Abbott from On the Count of Three. So you did see most of this film, right? I don't know if I would want to be on record about most okay. here. <laughs> well, so this is a film. It's a dark comedy, capital D, capital C, about two friends who make a pact to end their lives at the end of the day, basically. And the character played by Christopher Abbott has been institutionalized for a large portion of his life due to uh, abuse that he faced as a child and due to kind of suicidal ideations and tendencies, all this stuff. But he gives the character such a nuanced take on that type of character that you rarely see in film. You, you usually see these characters as kind of being one note and being very reserved and quiet and antisocial and almost non-functioning. And this character, while being depressed, while being suicidal, is also functioning, high-functioning. And he has love for his friends, and he has cares and humor. And I just think that Christopher Abbott is quickly becoming one of those performers where when he's in a movie, you have to watch it. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. He's definitely popping up in some cool projects. Although you did hate the most recent thing we had seen with him in. Whoa. <laughs> and actually did recently say that you wish you hadn't watched it. <laughs> so there's actually two films that he's in that I kind of actively dislike. Oh, actually, I wasn't even thinking... I was thinking of Black Bear, and I wasn't even thinking of the actual most recent thing yeah. we'd seen him in. Yeah, so it is odd, but I will say that I actively enjoyed Christopher Abbott in both of those films. And, you know, something that we should share with the listeners is that we've kind of accrued what we are calling our boys. Uh, We each have actors that we have just decided to stand for no other reason than to say that we stand them to each other. 
And there's some questionable criteria for what quantifies a boy. They so, can't like, be that famous. Like yeah. they like they can be famous, but not like that famous. Well, I would say that they can't be quote unquote that famous at the time that you acquire them as your boy. That's true. They could blow right? up. Because my not... number one boy, of course, is Michael B. Jordan, who yeah. is like sexiest man alive. So he's super mm-hmm. famous. But I feel like I picked him as my boy like in 2010 or whatever. Whenever Chronicle mm-hmm. came out, I was like, this is my guy. And so he's like a classic, my boy. But I am here now saying that I am claiming Christopher Abbott as my boy. I And you can have that. Thank you. I will not fight you on it. Yeah. So great performance and on the count of three. Great movie. We're going to talk about it more in a little bit. But um, let's go ahead and move on to the next category. Um, this is the best directorial debut. These are the movies that debutted at <laughs> that Sundance. And it was the first time that the director had a feature. So there were a lot of them. Dana, what was your favorite? I would say that my favorite directorial um, debut, as we apparently now exclusively say on the pod. um, Yeah, this is one of those changes I've been talking about. (laughs) Yeah, let us know what you think. Send us an email. At me. (laughs) Um, um, Comes from Fran Kranz, or Ron Kranz, um, depending on where you're from. (laughs) Fran Crayons. (laughs) Or, or Fran Cron. It's like a Sean Bean scenario. Fran. Sean Bean. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um. Anyway, it is called Mass, and Mass we buried the lead there a little bit. Um, Mass is about the coming together of two um two families, two sets of parents, both of whom have sort of had their families rocked by the experience of their children, their sons being involved in a school shooting in which one of the couple's sons was the shooter and he he killed the son of the other family. And this, as you can probably imagine from that little synopsis, is a heavy, heavy movie that does not quit and you spend the entire time like just very tense. Um, There's no levity the entire time. Um, yeah, it's even, a conversation between these people in one room, the yeah. whole movie, basically. Yes, and and that's definitely very intentional, and it, it lends to sort of the the lack of escape that there is for these people and just the sort of the claustrophobia of grief where there there is nowhere to go. And I think that this movie, you know, I, I don't know yet, and I don't know if anyone knows yet because I don't know if any such parties have seen it, but I, I will be sort of interested. I don't know if they'll want to watch it, but I'll be interested to see what the reaction of this movie would be if there are any people from families who have survived this kind mm-hmm. of experience, what they think of it, because I'm I'm not sure. Um and I don't know what, you know, what their experience is like. So I can't say like, oh, this does an amazing job, you know, explaining what these people feel because I, you know, I don't know that this is it. From what I've, you know, read about such experiences, it it does seem to be reflective of that sort of emotional process of, you know, so you have the one family sort of grappling with what happened to their their son. And in that they sort of they are struggling to forgive the other set of parents because they're kind of like, well, you know, how could you not have stopped this? And so the whole conversation happens course of over the course of the entire movie. And it's it's really Again, it's really heavy, um, and I think that it couldn't have worked if it, it was not d- 
directed in a really dynamic way. And it's it's interesting to use the word dynamic about something that takes place in one room. But I think just the way that it flows and is paced and the way that the camera moves and just chooses to travel across these four people makes it feel like a full movie and not just, you know, a monotonous conversation that you're eavesdropping on. Yeah, that was really well put. This guy, Fran Kranz, Fran Crayons, he is 39. And this is his directorial debut, but, you know, he's an actor that has been around for a long time. Like you might have seen him in Cabin in the Woods or most recently we saw him in, um, what was that, Matchstick Men. And I think he's really famous or well known for Dollhouse, which is a TV show that exists. I've known nothing about it. <laughs> but him not only directing, but also writing this as a directorial debut is just astonishing. Simply like the level of craft and competence in like how he frames everything, how the conversation and the movie ebbs and flows and how it's tense at moments. And then it kind of gives a, gives you a relief. It, it doesn't use comedy or anything, but there are moments when they're at each other's throats. There's moments when you feel like one side is quote unquote in the right and the other is in the wrong. And then you feel the opposite. And and he gives, he gives these characters, these fleshed out stances and takes on this really difficult issue in a way that is just incredible writing, like just absolutely incredible how each one of these four parents has a different approach to how they're dealing with this and how every single one of them, with the exception of maybe one, feels like equally valid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that level of just being in control of your characters and being in control of the actors and the performances I think is it just can't be understated. So huge, huge kudos to this guy. I, I would not have guessed that this guy that I barely recognized was going to make such a great film. But, um, you know, he has great actors and a, just a really wonderful script. So, like, yeah, definitely. I don't know if I said this, but this is also my best directorial debut as well. Moving right along, we've just got a few more categories here until we talk about our podium winners, the best three films of Sundance. You know, we talked a little bit about COVID-related films. So what is the best one of these, the best COVID-related, COVID-adjacent film? And I guess the question, if it's adjacent, would be how or why is it COVID-adjacent? Yeah, so I think, you know, this is a pretty open-ended question, and even though it does not directly invoke COVID um, in the movie, I, for this category, would say Land, which we've already touched on, um, that movie with Demian Bashir and Robin Wright. That's also directed by Robin Wright. And I I think this movie as, as COVID adjacent because um, basically Robin Wright uproots her own life and moves to live in a very remote cabin by herself, live off the land, kind of, you know, do it, do it all herself. And the reason that she does this is not sort of immediately clear at the beginning of the movie. So I, I won't get too much into it. Um, but it, it's not, you know, she's not like social distancing to the max or anything. But but <laughs> even though the reason that she's in this situation is not because of COVID, just her again being in this form of extreme isolation and you know, having to really look within herself to um, find meaning, I think is really relatable to a lot of people right now in the context of COVID. 
you know, where we're not able to to connect with the people around us. And, you know, we're spending a lot more time with our own thoughts. And for some of us, we might be, in light of that fact, trying to divert ourselves as much as possible to avoid being alone with our own thoughts. And this is sort of someone who is instead taking a different approach where she is able to find much more peace rather than being surrounded by distractions mm-hmm. by sort of being in this like ultimate survival mode where you know she has to catch her own food or she won't eat and she has to make her own fire or she'll freeze um and that's definitely an interesting sort of thing to think about um that you know in modern life we are so divorced from having to you know gather and hunt our own food and and sort of have to think about those really basic aspects of our survival when we live in sort of industrialized society. Um, but I do think that this movie does does touch on a lot of themes that are top of mind right now. I have no notes. Um, that is also my best COVID-related slash COVID-adjacent film. And that's also kind of a testament to how all the ones that are COVID-related, I really didn't connect with. <laughs> You know, we we talked about that already a little bit, but just there's a couple of these ones that are pretty explicitly about COVID or they're filmed during the pandemic. So the actual plot mechanisms are due to them being isolated due to the pandemic. And I just like those didn't connect with me at all. This one, like you're saying, I mean, I'm not going to repeat the same thing you did. So you you said it perfectly. Um, I talk more about this with uh, Catherine Gonzalez from Latinx Lens in one of our mini reviews. You can check that out. But Dana summarized it great. Um, definitely the best COVID-adjacent film from uh, Sundance. So with that, we're at our last category. And if anybody was paying attention to the uh, Sundance 5K miniseries special, whatever, um, I ended all of those with questions that are marathon related. And that's going to be something I'm going to try and continue. So if that sucks... Please tell me instead of just pretending like I don't care what you think. Like, please tell me if these make sense. But, um, Dana, I tasked you with picking a film that we saw at Sundance to build a movie marathon around. So pick a film and then build a movie marathon to watch consecutively from that film. What do you have? Could I perhaps tell you the movies that you would watch in the marathon and have you tell me what movie? (laughs) the marathon is based on sure that's interesting okay so for this marathon you could watch films such as goodwill hunting the town um gone baby gone um okay so is it the world to come no with casey affleck no oh he's not in the town shit um you could watch knives out you could watch um little women you could watch bob odenkirk (laughs) The movie is Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> no, okay. I, I will... Um... No, 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 no. Give me, give me a second. So all of them except Little Women take place in Boston, or I guess Massachusetts. Does Little Women take place in Massachusetts? What took place in Massachusetts? Oh, oh, Coda. No. I give up. I don't know. Mass. Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> That's so stupid. It's a mass movie marathon. <laughs> okay you should have also included like spotlight because that's double pun yeah, like going I, to mass I, yeah. and that takes place i came in up with this idea while we've been recording so well thank you for coming prepared <laughs> what's your movie marathon mati i'm so glad you asked thank you um my movie marathon is the moises arias movie marathon inspired by jockey 
which does star Moises Arias. I'm a huge fan of when former Disney Channel actors decide to like be in really serious and successful dramas, I guess I would say. And, you know, that's why I'm a huge fan of seeing Zendaya's career peak as it has, because like I still know her as Rocky from Shake It Up, which I know you haven't seen. So it's, it's a I little embarrassing. Via investigative journalism, uncover for you that Zendaya also was at one point in her life a kids' bop kid. Yeah, <laughs> she is a kids' bop kid. I don't think Moises Arias was, but Moises Arias is, of course, Rico in Hannah Montana. And this film does a pretty good job at showing why he's a good actor. Like he's very understated. Uh, he's a very small guy, so he's kind of like limited, I think, in some of the roles that he's given. But you know, he's in films like you could watch Ender's Game which I don't think is particularly great, but that's fine. Um, King of watch, Staten Island. Yep, King of Staten Island. Um, the King of Summer, the the Kings of Summer, whatever that movie is. So I like he's, Kings. Yeah, he's got marathon. a lot of... Uh, <laughs> you could also throw King Cog in there. No, he's not in that, but he's got a lot of movies under his belt that are pretty solid films. And I would just like love to talk to him about the difference in like acting on Hannah Montana versus acting in a subtle quiet film Moises Arias if you're listening reach out yeah please reach out if you know Moises Arias if you just got him on the 2021 version of speed dial then please let me know but um yeah you'd also get a couple episodes of Hannah Montana in there which I think are objectively funny and good quality so it would be a good marathon in my opinion yeah it could be (laughs) okay all right well um I don't It doesn't sound like I convinced you, but that's fine. Let's go ahead and move on to the podium winners. So these are the three best films that we saw at Sundance, bronze, silver, and gold. Dana, what is your bronze winning film? So I won't say much about it because we just talked about it in multiple circumstances, but my bronze film is Mass. Great. Yeah. This was my number four film, so it fell just outside of the podium. But yeah, a really great film. Why don't you just give me your number two and number one, and then we'll we'll talk about mine. Um, okay. So what's your number two? I, I do have a little bit of a warning that if anyone came here for hot takes, there are none to be had um, for my <laughs> top two movies. Um, I honestly, even as I'm looking at these, I don't know which one is number one and number two, but I'll say them in the order I wrote them. So at number two, I had Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, this is my number three, which is why I wanted you to share your number two. Really great film. I will be talking about it next week, but Dana, you can give your like, you know, what just overall thoughts or overall summary of, of what yeah, this is. Yeah, so this film stars Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, um, who is the leader of the um, chapter of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. And it stars Lakeith Stanfield as an FBI informant who has sort of infiltrated that Black mm-hmm. Panther Party. And both of these performances are amazing which is no surprise considering these actors i feel like they're both water is wet like surefire um you know knock it out of the park people who i i just know will go on to have you know amazing careers i think that daniel kaluuya's charisma as fred hampton is so incredibly convincing and you really see you know how much he he meant to people and you know, Fred Hampton is someone who, you know, I've heard of and I, I know a little bit about, but isn't, you know, on the same scale as, you know, Malcolm X or, or someone that we've seen movies about before. And so I think that this movie is also just interesting in that it brings awareness to another um, black leader at the time in the late 60s, early 70s. 
um, when, you know, the civil rights movement was really at a crux. This movie is coming out on HBO Max this weekend, so you will be able to watch it very soon, and I'm sure that you probably are already planning on watching it, but if you are not, then let this be your reminder that you most certainly should. Yeah, uh, co-signed. It's, it's a phenomenal film. I'll be talking about it next week with uh, Raul from the Minorities Report podcast. Uh, really excited about that conversation. And it will be, you know, full review, so spoiler-free and then spoilers, so be sure to check it out. Um, I'll go ahead and say my number two, because we do have the same number one film, and it has been completely absent from this podcast until then. So uh, I'll just quickly say my number two, which we already talked about on the count of three. I already talked about Christopher Abbott's performance. The other main performer is Jared Carmichael, who um, also directed the film. Uh, He's kind of a, a comedian known to be a comedian and um he just delivers a really solid deadpan humor-esque performance that i really adored i adored the entire film in its message it's very life reaffirming it's very beautiful um i did talk about it more with thomas stoneham judge on one of the first mini reviews that we did so definitely be sure to check that out that was a really good conversation too but uh yeah just great film i hope people check it out it is not for everyone because it does deal very heavily with suicidal ideations and so um definitely keep that in mind going forward like it or going into it i should say is that it, it's it's a heavy film but it's also cynically funny and i really love films like that so dana what is our number one film that people definitely haven't guessed already our number one film is coda which is an acronym um so it's all caps coda child of deaf adults is the meaning of coda, although coda is also a term in musical theory, um, you know, at the the end of a song. And so I think that that is something that the title of the film is definitely playing with a little bit because oh, music does yeah. um, does factor into this movie. But it, also it's the name of a certain someone's cat. Yes, it is the name of one of my cats, um, although that's coda with a K. Um, but this this movie, it is set in Massachusetts, as you did touch on earlier. And it is about a teenage girl who is the only hearing individual in her family of four. Her parents and her older brother are all deaf. And so she has sort of spent her life, um, you know, being an interpreter for them as she, um, you know, helps them navigate their fishing business. She sort of, in addition to balancing just being a kid and going to high school, has to, um, you know, go to go to work with her family all the time and help her dad and her brother sell fish. And it's really interesting because, you know, the sort of tension between how she has to deal with her family. And I say deal with like it's a it's a negatively connotated thing. And it's hard because you see how much she's struggling to balance being a kid and having to do this. But it's not her family's fault. She has to do this. It's really the fact that the rest of the world is so inaccessible to deaf people that Mm -hmm. she has to basically give up being a normal kid to to go do this. And I think that it really speaks to how much um, the world would benefit from being more accessible such that it were um, more easy for deaf people to navigate being in hearing spaces and being able to conduct business and not be at a disadvantage because people aren't able to understand them. And it's really not about them not being able to communicate because I think that they could get by, um, you know, through their own forms of communication, but people are, you know, trying to rip them off because, 
you know, they know that they're not able to understand them. So, so there's so many different social issues that sort of emerge over the course of this film with regard to disability and in particular being deaf. And I'm interested to see how this film is received by the deaf community. It does have multiple deaf actors who star in the movie, which mm-hmm. is really cool, and how um, prominently featured sign language is in this movie. And I definitely think it's a really... There are some things that are kind of tropey about it, um, especially in the first 30 minutes or so, that's sort of setting it up to be kind of like another like teenage rom-com. But the the unique aspects of it ultimately definitely triumph and make this something worth watching, something unique, something really heartwarming. And I definitely recommend checking it out. The performances are awesome. Um, I think the direction is great. And I think it's really sweet. And um, I think you cried. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to bring this up because somehow in our relationship, I have become the one who cries in movies. And I say that with the understanding that I have cried like in maybe three movies that we've watched, but you like live for when I cry in a movie. Like you are excited to see me cry in a movie. So there are moments in this movie where that get pretty touching. And I'm sitting there like trying to live in the moment, like, be in touch with my emotions. And if I cry, I cry. And then I see just next to me, a head slowly turn and just stare at me until I start crying. And it really takes me out of the movie. I'm sorry. No, I think <laughs> I think I almost cried in this as well. It, it is really touching. Um, and I think part of the reason that I do this is because I will admit, I did think it was really funny when you did cry during the Amelia Clark henry golding (laughs) film last christmas (laughs) i did not think i would and it has been a hard christmas for me because i I did not get to see my family so i mean no i i i thought it was also ridiculous that i cried in that movie i can't believe that happened like (laughs) and it wasn't even like a couple tears like i I think i like teared up in coda which is an objectively better and more emotionally affecting film than fucking last christmas but i was a mess yeah last christmas so i do take that you know reputation in stride but um just just let me cry and if it happens it happens uh but yeah i mean coda fantastic film you hit all the points that i wanted to hit it it does feel a little formulaic at times but i think when it starts to play into the conflict that the um the main character what's her name uh ruby when it starts to play into the main conflicts that Ruby has with her family and just how it gives every single one of those characters in her family a different perspective. I mean, it's sort of similar to what I was saying with Mass, but so often you have like the mom and the dad character kind of act as a unit. And mm-hmm. then he, there's a brother character in this that has a very interesting point of view, mm-hmm. has a very touching relationship with one of the other characters in this film, too, that I think could be its own film, like just watching this guy and this performer. And so, like, I really like when the film starts to become more nuanced and starts to say, who's in the right here? Um, whose fault is this? And, and you bring up a really good point that I didn't even think about that, like, a lot of the conflict of this movie is because we don't provide the structures needed for deaf people to interact in hearing spaces. And, like, if we did that, then a lot of the conflict in this film would not be a conflict. And so that idea of, like, it's not the family's fault, but they're still restricting her access to following her dreams all this stuff is just really really um nuanced is such a trite buzzword but it is it's really nuanced and 
I, it makes me reflect on a lot of things. Um, and I think just on a, on a more globally accessible level, like I'm, I'm not a, a hard of hearing individual. So like, I don't know that experience, but I do know the experience of like leaving my family to mm-hmm. go pursue college in Boston mm-hmm. of all places, which is what she does in this film. I find a lot of that really relatable and like learning how to let go of family while still being a part of the family and how parents come to term with that, how siblings come to term with that. I mean, speaking of crying, like my brother and my dad cried like when I they left me at the airport to like come here to, for college. So like a lot of that emotion is like feels really authentic in this mm-hmm. film and it's beautiful for that. Yeah, definitely. You definitely feel the closeness of the family, which if anything, I think is amplified by the conflict that they have because it's not this portrayal of this, you know, perfect family who never argues like they they do have conflict, but they they do love each other very much and they care about each other very much. And they they try to put each other first and really think about um, each other's needs. And I think that the closeness of that family really lends a warmth to this film Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, really lends a sense of intimacy and you really feel like you get to know the characters. The film is also really funny. We should say that yeah. is there's a lot of really funny moments. Great Tinder joke. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of the the jokes too are it's funny because of the jokes will be made by people who are um, using ASL and you know there's some dramatic irony to knowing that the hearing people sort of who are in the movie like are missing out on the joke but we get subtitles yeah. <laughs> so we get to see the joke um, and so they're kind of talking behind the backs but in front of the backs of some of the people who are there so it's funny yeah it's a really uh, extraordinary film definitely recommend checking it out it did get bought by apple tv plus i think it was the festival's first big acquisition um and it is going to i, I don't know when it's i saw something too that said it's like one of the biggest like acquisitions from sundance like ever. yeah yeah i know last year palm springs broke that record i don't know if this broke it or if passing did um i don't know whatever anyways coda Check it out when it comes to Apple TV+. Plus. As I said in our top 10 of 2020 episode, you probably already have Apple TV+. Plus. So just like, I don't know, figure it out. Go watch this film. Watch Ted Lasso. Check out Boy State. A lot of great stuff on there. Apple, please sponsor me. All right. With that, this has been our episode recapping the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. Dana, thank you so much for joining me both on this episode and through the Sundance journey. It was a lot of fun getting to experience this whole thing with you. Thank you so much for having me. It has been an honor and a pleasure as always, despite the fact that I have learned I'm no longer a special guest. But you are getting paid double. True. So congratulations. Is there anything specific that you'd like to plug here? Um, at the end of the day, no. Great. <laughs> well, the intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when I release new episodes, you can follow me on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to the podcast via email by contacting MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast online at evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie-marathoners or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe or write a review if you like the podcast, and any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated, especially as I start to implement some of these changes. 
So thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time when I'm joined by Raul from the Minorities Report podcast to review the HBO Max debut of Judas and the Black Messiah. We already talked a little bit about it, but we're going to go really in-depth into it. It's going to be a lot of fun with some, some new format changes, so stay tuned for that. And until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.